the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. All right, a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome to this Tuesday. It is the 12th day of December, and I guess we've just begun the 12 days of Christmas. Is that right? 12 and 24? Yeah, that's exactly right. So happy first day of the 12 days of Christmas. And if I'm wrong about the exact timing of that date, uh, send me an email or call me at 888-367-5329, and you can set uh, set me straight and Jarrell as well, because he, he nodded his head in agreement. So I'm, I'm going basically on <laughs> on his authority. Hey, we've we've got a a very special program for you tonight. First hour, we're going to deal with some of the unfortunate, untimely topics taking place in the news. And in particular, um, for those of you that are involved in your church in a leadership position, perhaps as a pastor or some other capacity, maybe a member of the Board of Deacons, we've asked Pastor Sam Rohr to join us later on tonight in the program to talk about important safety measures that churches need to be taking into consideration leading into this Christmas season, because, of course, as always, we see a huge spike in church attendance by a lot of people that, quite frankly, we don't see throughout the year. Do they come with honest intentions, or might they come with nefarious intentions in mind? We don't know, but we need to be prepared. Some insights that you and your church need to be considering as we see a spike in church attendance this Christmas season. Also want to mention in terms of Christmas, uh, again, as always, tremendous love and appreciation shown um, by you and returned back to you uh, on behalf of your efforts to help support us in our campaign to provide meals and children's toys this Christmas for needy families around the Bay Area in partnership with the Bay Area Rescue Mission. Well, we talked a lot about the annual Children's Christmas Celebration, December the 22nd. Last year, we reported that almost 1,900 kids, 1,869 to be exact, attended the event. 800 of them made a decision for Christ, and that certainly is exciting news. We'd like to see the same thing happen again this year. Here's the challenge. They don't have enough volunteers. We're going to get John Anderson on the line later on in the program tonight. But right now, the Bay Area Rescue Mission is in need of at least 150 volunteers to pull off this special event. We just need you to come down and give a few hours on Friday, December the 22nd at the Richmond Civic Center Auditorium. Maybe you can get some friends from work or church to come down and be a part of this very special children's Christmas celebration. In order to get more details, you do need to register to be a volunteer. You can go to bayarearescue.org. 
org and click on the Get Involved button to sign up. That's bayarearescue.org and click on the Get Involved button to sign up. And again, we'll try to get you more details with John Anderson a little bit later on in tonight's program. The Bangladeshi immigrant accused of strapping a pipe bomb to his chest in the attempted suicide bombing is now facing federal charges, as James Flippin reports from Manhattan. Acting U.S. Attorney June Kim says Ikeyed Ula told investigators he became radicalized online by ISIS propaganda. Researching how to build bombs about a year ago. He gathered materials like wires and a metal pipe over the past few weeks. And actually built the bomb a week before his attack. The ensuing investigation allegedly turned up further bomb-making materials at Ula's Brooklyn apartment, like leftover metal screws, the likes of which he'd stuffed into that pipe bomb. Also, a chilling handwritten note on his passport. Oh, America, die in your rage. Kim saying that what would-be terrorists will find in this part of the country is resilient New Yorkers and swift justice. In Manhattan, James Flippin, NBC News Radio, New York. The frightening aspect of this, of course, is the second such attack in some six weeks in New York City. To get some insights into what's going on here and whether or not we're at the cusp of a trend, or whether or not this attack is simply in potential retaliation for the recent decision by President Trump to move the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, we're joined by Herb London. Herb is president of the London Center for Policy Research. He also serves as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and is author of the new book, Leading from Behind, The Obama Doctrine and the U.S. Retreat from International Affairs. And Herb, again, great to have you on the program. Well, pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. The timing of this, of course, is is troubling. We're talking about an extremely busy time of the year. You've got holiday shoppers, people bustling back and forth to work. This attack, 730 in the morning in a busy midtown Manhattan subway corridor. Obviously, it was designed to have the maximum impact. Fortunately, it looks like his understanding of designing bombs was leaving a little bit something to be desired. Well, the bomb went off prematurely. Had it not gone off in that way, it probably would have killed somewhere between 50 and 100 people. So I think we were very fortunate. But what it suggests is that this kind of terrorism is not going to go away. Uh, the vulnerability of the United States, the openness of our society, clearly suggests that we will be facing incidents of this kind in the future. And it's also true that the so-called radicalization has, is an ongoing process, in large part because ISIS and al-Qaeda understand that they are in a war of ideas. This ideational war that we are engaged in is a war that's going to go on for a long time. And we've got to convince many young people that there is no virgin waiting for you in paradise. And in fact, what will happen is you're going to be put in a black box and buried six feet under the ground. There is no future for you. We've got to give people a future, but they do not have one with ISIS, notwithstanding all of the claims about romance and concubines and rifles. So I I do think that it's imperative we start to understand this is not only a war being fought in Mosul and in Raqqa. It's a war being fought in our cities, in our states, and, of course, in the minds of young people across the globe. This immigrant, as we are learning, was a so-called chain immigrant here on a F-43 visa. He's been stateside for about six years now, living in Brooklyn. And I guess part of the problem here is that some of these newer immigrants, and I don't know that necessarily Bangladesh is at the top of a terrorist-producing country list, but regardless, it sounds like some of these newer immigrants are having a difficult time integrating into American culture and society. 
Well, you know, again, in the case of the Bangladeshis, they represent half of the taxi drivers in New York. So many of them have obviously integrated into the society. What is interesting is that the mother of this young man, who came to the United States under a lottery, a lottery, by the way, in which there wasn't any betting at all, that brings her son here, largely through chain immigration, as you pointed out. His goal is to kill Americans. And there's virtually no vetting that occurs in his case because of family unification practices. Now, this is bizarre. This is utterly bizarre. And if we're going to change anything, we must change an immigration policy that makes it easy or relatively easy for people of this variety to enter the United States and to cause murder and mayhem. It would seem to me, Herb, in a post-9-11 environment that we've missed taking to heart some important lessons. I mean, why is it even still we feel compelled to engage in the so-called lottery? I mean, I realize there's a vetting process after that, but even the terminology seems to have so much of of at-risk or at-chance inherent to it. Shouldn't we as a nation be far more selective in terms of the, the people that we are inviting and what countries they're coming from? I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, if there was one reason why Donald Trump was elected president of the United States last year. It's because Donald Trump understood the immigration issue on a visceral level, on a level that most Americans understand. These are not elitists. The elitists marching up and down K Street, they don't get it. But the average guy saying, you know what, the president of the United States has a responsibility to maintain order and tranquility. That's his job. If he is not doing it, something is wrong. And if immigration policy stands in the way of maintaining the kind of national security we deserve and need, then it seems to me we've got to change presidents. And I think that's what happened. Visiting today with Herb London. Herb is president of the London Center for Policy Research, also serves as senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We are talking about the fallout of the second such attack on New York City in some six weeks now, and uh, there's so many layers of this so-called political onion that we have to peel back here that we're going to ask Herb to stay with us for one more segment. We'll take a brief time out, get you updated on some traffic, then come back to more of the conversation as we wrestle through these questions as to why we are slow, so slow when it comes to protecting American interests. And let me remind you, it was just in the last two weeks that the green light was given for the restrictions on certain profiles of individuals coming from highly dangerous terrorist exporting nations. This has been a political football that's been bounced back and forth since literally January of this year. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Herb London, president of the London Center for Policy Research, as this edition of Lifeline continues. Get a look at traffic for you right now. As promised at 516, we've got Michael Bennett standing by with the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. We're visiting today with Herb London. Herb is the president of the London Center for Policy Research. We're talking about the most recent bomb attack in New York City, coming barely six weeks after the truck attack occurred in Manhattan. And while we're grateful that no one's been killed in this most recent event, it still brings up more questions about not just 
security during busy times of the year, particularly around the holidays in places like New York City, but also the overall issue related to American public policy and, more specifically, American immigration policy. Uh, Herb, come back full circle, if you would, to this notion that some are saying, well, this is something, nothing more than a response to Trump's announcement moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Do you think that's really behind it, or is this just part of the broader plan of ISIS calling for Christmas attacks across the globe? Well, if he were radicalized, it would have occurred long before the decision was made by President Trump. and He was probably unaware of the fact that the president was about to make this announcement. Moreover, if you are looking at the kind of so-called days of rage, we have seen one demonstrator in Lebanon standing in front of the American embassy demonstrating. Uh, I think that the demonstrations have dissipated by and large, and it is interesting that the quiescence of Saudi Arabia and Egypt are also palpable. They haven't said any word. There hasn't been any public official announcement denouncing the, the decision by the Trump administration. That in itself is very interesting. Clearly, this is going to call for, uh, I hope, another review of our immigration policy. Although already I've heard some of the Democrats suggesting, well, maybe we can look at this. Maybe maybe we need to give some consideration to the F-43 visa program. But we have to be careful because we want to make sure that we're giving everybody a fair shake. Is there a misnomer? Is there misguidance in this notion that somehow we need to make sure that we're accepting so many people from every single country across the board? Well, this whole notion of giving people a fair shake is absurd. Immigration policy is designed to benefit the United States. The policy is not designed to change the character of the world. We cannot do that. All we can say is we want an immigration policy that would invite people to this country who care about America. Teddy Roosevelt once used the expression Americanization. And what he meant by that is, I want people to come to the United States, said the president, when they care about the United States, they embrace our customs, they understand our Constitution, they want to be part of the American society, and they speak our language. If those are the people that want to come here, I'm all in favor, he said, and so am I. If people want to come here to cause murder and threaten us, I don't see the purpose behind that kind of immigration policy. I'm not interested in fairness. I'm interested in protecting America. I'm interested in our national security. I'm a civil libertarian, and I care very much about providing human rights conditions across the board. But human rights comes to an end where my life begins. If someone wants to kill me, it seems to me I'm not terribly concerned about the human rights of that individual. I think he should be killed first, and in this instance, kept out of the United States first. So I think that it is perfectly clear how we should be behaving. We have heard in the news media today the family saying that they're shocked at what their son has been accused of, and yet the family seems to be feigning outrage over the way law enforcement interrogated them related to their connection to this Islamic terrorist. What's your response to that, uh, their response? Well, the, the mother said that I'm terribly upset about the fact that my son was jostled when he was put into a, an ambulance and taken to the hospital. <laughs> She's got to be kidding. But again, you know, the, the liberals in America do not understand what they have created. They've created this view 
that it is the person committing crimes against us that deserves our sympathy, not the person who has been responsible, who is largely the, the, the party, the target of these assailants. It, this, it does not make any sense to me. I, I suppose we in many ways... the in the pe- people who commit murder than we are in the people who have been murdered. And I suppose in many ways the recent decision by the jury in the Kate Steinle case demonstrates that. Uh, well, without any question. I mean, after all, this very attractive girl is doing nothing more than walking on a pier with her father in San Francisco. Nothing more than that. And here's a man who kills her. And then we're supposed to be sympathetic to this individual. In fact, I've even heard commentary which suggested, well, he's had a difficult time in the United States. He's committed five different crimes. He's been forced out of the country. He hasn't been able to find a job. And this warrants a murder? This justifies the murder of an innocent girl in America? I think we've got our priorities all wrong. How do we go about nudging this in the right direction, Herb? And I asked that question, as I referred to before the break, the notion that it's taken almost a year worth of court battles to finally get a decision that favors the president's proclamation that, no, we're not halting immigration from all countries. We're simply saying that Islamic countries that have a reputation and a proven history, a demonstrable history of exporting terrorism, we need to give significantly more careful consideration to immigrants coming to the United States from those countries. Sounds reasonable to me, much as we said, you know what, if you're immigrating to the United States from countries like Italy, Japan, and Germany at the height of World War II, we're probably going to give you a little closer scrutiny. It's taken a year to finally get a court to see the president's viewpoint on this. Uh, Should we be encouraged by that? Well, the Supreme Court obviously repudiated the decision in the Ninth Circuit Court. And the Ninth Circuit Court is like dealing with Soviet, uh, uh, kind of Stalinist Russia. I mean, these people always have their cases overturned. And in this particular instance, they had one goal in mind, and that was to embarrass the Trump administration. It has nothing at all to do with policy. So, you know, I'm not at all surprised. In fact, I would have been surprised if the Supreme Court ruled in any other way. After all, as you pointed out, how do you get records from a war-torn nation like uh, Somalia or, or Syria? Where are you going to find those records? We're not going to know who is coming into the United States. And we have an obligation to all Americans to say we must be sure about the safety of Americans. And the only way to do that is to engage in this severe vetting of people who are coming here. It's just coming down to a matter of self-protection, doesn't it? Exactly. Exactly. As I said, you know, my, my feeling about it is I'm all in favor of civil liberties, human rights, All of these things are important. But the idea that somehow we have to provide fairness in immigration policy is absurd. What we have to provide is a benefit for America. If people want to come here, they want to benefit the United States, I'm all for their coming here. But if they want to come here to cause mayhem, I don't want them in this country. And at the end of the day, in the effort toward fairness, we need to make sure that first and foremost, the fairness is weighted on the side of what is most fair, what is most in favor of the protection, security, safety of United States citizens and United States residents, and not simply trying to play some sort of, I don't know, game of, of, 
political international roulette deciding who comes in and who doesn't go in, arbitrarily so, to the point of it putting our own lives and our own national security at risk, which apparently is what's happened in this case. Our thanks to Herb London, president of the London Center for Policy Research. Herb is also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And more information available on the web, by the way, about Herb's work at londoncenter.org. That's londoncenter.org. It's 530. Pause and get you updated here on traffic once again. The latest from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, imagine having almost 2,000 people invited to come to your home for Christmas. Uh, Add my name to the list. (laughs) And yet not having near enough help in the family to get all the preparations made. You'd probably be pulling your hair out, I would guess. Well, uh, in which case then, uh, as we're joined by Reverend John Anderson of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, probably much of the same. As we mentioned a couple of hours ago, or within the last hour, uh, the Bay Area Rescue's annual children's Christmas party coming up quickly. It's going to be on Friday, December the 22nd, nearly two. 2,000 children are anticipated to come from uh, throughout the Bay Area from impoverished families and hurting families that are looking to receive a meal. Certainly uh, the kids coming for Christmas gifts and a great opportunity to share the good news of the story of Christmas with these children and yet not nearly enough volunteers for all the preparations. John Anderson joins us quickly. John, tell us what's going on. you got a big party and uh, not enough help, sounds like. Exactly, Craig, and, and in fact, I've already pulled my hair out. Uh, <laughs> it's hard for the studio, for the audience to know that, uh, because when I'm in the studio with you, we're looking across the mics at each other, but uh, there's not much hair, hair left on the top of my head. Well, December the 22nd, we are expecting more than 2,000 needy, impoverished children that quite honestly won't have a Christmas if it's not for the Bay Area Rescue Mission's event at the Richmond Civic Center Auditorium. And we've got most of the presents that we need. We can always use a little bit more cash donations to underwrite the expensive event. But the thing we're looking for more than anything else right now is another 150 to 200 volunteers to help the day of the event. Starting at 11 a.m. on Friday, December 22nd, well, actually starting at 10.30 for the volunteers and going until 3.30 in the afternoon, we need a lot of people. We need help so that we can pull this event off as we share the hope and love of Jesus Christ with so many children and make it just a great day. We had mentioned, John, earlier that last year almost 1,900 children, exactly 1,869 children, attended the event. More than 800 of those made decisions to accept Christ as Savior, which is certainly exciting and good news. And, of course, you're hoping to repeat that this year. The challenge, if folks are just tuning in a bit late, Reverend John Anderson from the Bay Area Rescue Mission is with us. And as they are preparing for the next big children's Christmas party for 2017, will be Friday, December the 22nd. They desperately need volunteers the day of the event. So 
friends from your church, from your lodge. Maybe you're going to take half a day off from work, gather some friends from the neighborhood, and come on down and volunteer. Again, to get more information, simply go to bayarearescue.org and click on the Get Involved tab to sign up. Now, John, I understand you do need folks to be pre-registered. Is that correct? We we really do so that we can anticipate uh, how to find them, what they're going to be doing, and really coordinate the whole thing with with over 250 volunteers coming to this event and about 2,000 children and four to 5,000 wrapped Christmas presents. Yeah, we, we really need everyone to pre-register who wants to volunteer. And like you said, they can do that at the Bay Area Rescue Mission's website. That's www.bayarearescue.org and click on that Get Involved Now tab. And uh, by the way, if you've got a group that's coming, only one person really needs to sign up. They can sign up for the whole group. All right, great. So again, you know, you're listening tonight. Maybe you're thinking, gee, I'd love to do something special this Christmas. Well, why not take a little time out of your schedule Friday the 22nd between 10.30 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. and come on out and volunteer. Last year, almost 1,900 children attended this special Christmas party, 800 of which made decisions for Christ. What a great way to head into the Christmas season. Why not volunteer? Get more information and sign up now. Go to bayarearescue.org and click on the Get Involved button to sign up. That's bayarearescue.org. And uh, if you want an easy way to get there, you can't remember that you're driving, go to the KFAX website, kfax.com. You'll see the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of the homepage. And again, as Reverend Anderson mentioned, uh, there's still time for you to sign up to volunteer if you want to contribute and uh, help provide some of the resources to finalize the wrapping paper and purchasing of gifts and whatnot for all of these needy kids, well, you can certainly still make that donation online at kfax.com. Look for the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of the homepage, and while you're there, you can navigate through. That'll take you to the Bay Area Rescue Mission's website where you can sign up at their Get Involved page. Friday, the 22nd of December, call out to volunteers so you, your church, your men's club, your women's organization, folks from work, whatever, get a gang together, come on down and help out for a great afternoon to meet the needs of needy kids from throughout the Bay Area at the special Children's Christmas Celebration for homeless and impoverished children throughout the Bay Area. Friday, December the 22nd at the Richmond Civic Center Auditorium. Details on the web, Bay Area Rescue. And our thanks there to John Anderson for joining us on short notice to uh, give us that update. Well, as we mentioned, of course, Christmas season, it is an incredibly busy time of the year for all of us. And no doubt it is one of the busiest on the Christian calendar. And part of that busyness, in addition to the preparations for the Christmas rush, also brings a significant increase of guest visitors to churches throughout the country. And while that's not unusual or different this year, what might be unusual or different is the increasing awareness that churches need to do a better job when it comes to consideration for things like security. We have seen, as we just discussed a moment ago with Herb London, the second Islamic terror attack in the United States in six weeks. And it isn't all that long ago that a domestic terror attack in a rural church in Texas unleashed absolute untold horror. We all pray never us, never our church, never our community, and yet we never know 
if we might be next. So what can and should we be doing to be better prepared? We're joined now by Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network and the Pennsylvania Pastors Network as well. He writes and produces Stand in the Gap radio program heard on radio stations across the country. And Pastor Rohrer, always a delight to have you join us. Uh, Craig, it's always a pleasure to be with you as well. Wow, some pastors might be overwhelmed at the thought. In addition to having to prepare Christmas celebrations and uh, the whole crunch of additional people coming, maybe special Christmas performances, the choirs gathering together and rehearsing and everything else, now we're suggesting that on top of that, we need to be mindful that there may be people attending church, certainly, that we don't see for a year And there may be people coming that don't necessarily have good intentions, and those are the folks that we need to be prepared for. But the big question is how? Well, that is the question, and uh, and it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, Craig, that really we've come to a part or a point in this country where one has to be concerned about uh, what happens when when any gathering assembles. But churches, uh, unfortunately, are not immune, as the examples you just cited. And you couple that with the fact that, uh, that we live in a culture and in a time uh, where, we have to be very blunt, there is an ideology. Uh, the, Islamic, uh, is the, the, ice, the, the Islamist ideology that, uh, that very, has made very clear uh, they are targeting churches, they are targeting uh, Western world um, during Christmas time. And it's not just in the Middle East anymore. It's uh, it's in Europe and and it's and it's here, and that is a changed thing. That was not the way it was a generation ago. That wasn't the way it really was even ten years ago. Things have changed. That's a fact, and people have to respond to it. Now, from a pastor's perspective, many we find really have to deal grapple with the fundamental part of it is that is it a pastor's duty or is it a, is it the elders? or deacons, you know, the leadership in the Church, do they actually have a duty to think about the protection of their flock physically? And many do grapple with that, uh, and they say, well, we don't really think we should. We should be operating by faith, and therefore uh, that really doesn't, you know, shouldn't fall under our purview. But we would suggest that biblically it really does uh, that uh, security and protection of those under authority, uh, be it the children in a home, parents, they're in authority. Are not parents responsible for the, for the security of their children? Yes, they are. Uh, government officials, certainly. We know Romans 13, to enact justice, protect and pr- praise those who do well, punish those who do evil. That really is the essence of protection wrapped up in that. So, yeah, we would say yeah, government's responsibility, police and military, protect the people. However, that falls across the board to every person in a position of authority, and that includes the pastor. If, in fact, if in fact, as Christ told uh, the disciples and uh, those ultimately that would be in a, in a pulpit, uh, I send you out among wolves, he said, and we, he said there'll be wolves uh, creep in among you. Are we not to warn about the wolves spiritually? Winter is yes, absolutely. So most would not say there's no responsibility to warn and guard spiritually. However, that guarding also, as a shepherd of the sheep, also really starts with the physical. It is also the spiritual. So that's what we say, pastors, we have to understand times have changed, number one. Number two, there is a duty. There is a duty biblically and because of the role of being an authority 
to watch out for and take certain precautions. And then there's a number of things that, once that's in place, how to go about doing it. But that's the first part we say we have to deal with. Is there a duty? Yes. Does the Bible say about that? answer is yes, and there are a number of examples going all the way back to the Old Testament where actually there were temple guards uh, that were in place all through the Old Testament in the temple. They were guards guarding the worship happening during the during that time so the precedent is there all the way back formally as well as inherent within a position of leadership so it starts there and, and, and moreover i would add to that that i i don't think that we should allow ourselves at any level to get caught up in the oh this is somehow a failure of our faith if we think that we need to be reliant mm-hmm. upon additional measures and you know god will obviously um protect us and look over us well absolutely yes and i, I would concur with that but at the same token Everybody eavesdropping on this conversation that's either a pastor, a deacon, a a member of the board, a Sunday school teacher, a church attendee, I would bet to a person probably all have health insurance. They probably all have car insurance, those who drive cars. They own a home. They have home insurance. If you're smart, you probably have smoke detectors. And I would imagine, and I bet I would, I'm not a betting man, but I bet I would win this bet that everybody's got doors that have locks on them. So in in the day-to-day conducting of life, we recognize that we need to take certain steps, certain measures, just to be prudent, just to be good stewards. And I would add to that, Pastor Pastor Rohr, for those that feel, well, gee, you know, this is such an uncomfortable, touchy subject. But wait a minute, though. The the broader sense of, of security in a public building is one that has been practiced for years. I mean, it's typical that public buildings have evacuation plans, movie theaters do, the business complex that we are in, they not only have an evacuation plan, but we even have to practice drills where they'll set off the alarms and everybody's to leave the building in an orderly fashion and gather at a certain location to make sure that if there is or is a fire or an earthquake or a disaster of that sort, that we know how to respond. So in one sense, we're really not asking for churches to do anything altogether unusual when we talk about people gathered in a public setting. No, no, no. <clears throat> I think the examples you gave there are absolutely and totally correct, and that does bring things down to a very practical level, because yes, the answer is yes, we do. And even in the setting of our churches, do we, do we not lock the doors at night when we leave, lest the, the you know, folks come in? The answer is yes. So the precedent really, really is there. It's just hard to believe, and that's the most difficult part. It's just hard to believe that actually there is a time, we have now entered a time, where there are people who actually look to kill you, to harm you. That's not been a part of our nation's history. Now, for other nations around the world, that has been. This is not anything new. They worship very carefully. There's a whole lot of things that have happened, but that's new to us, Craig. And that is hard to get our hands and our head around, but the fact of the matter is that has changed. So what we say, understand that those times have changed. We have entered a culture that is not, uh, that really by and large is not governed by self-restraint, according to the Ten Commandments of God, as our founders said. Uh, we, we've really entered a time where, for a long time, where the culture has been one where we've thrown God out into the streets. We don't really need Him publicly. And, uh, and, our, and our trust has shifted uh, from, from God to government, and people have become less restrained. That's a mark of where we are. It should be a motivation for us to be more urgent about our faith and the spreading of the gospel and evangelizing, because 
ultimately it's changed hearts that produces safety and self-restraint in other people's lives. But when that's not the case, then you do have to consider that. And churches that we've, we find out is that it's normally your big churches, your mega churches, they've had generally systems in place. They've, as you said, they're big gatherings. They're, they've, they're more prepared. Uh, we found that a lot of our inner city churches across the country, many of them don't have actual uh, security systems in place with, with uh, folks watching and that kind of thing, because we, we're finding that they believe that because they have so much police presence in the street, that they really rely on them, and probably in many cases they may be right. The, the, the greater targets are the churches that are out away from people, uh, those that may be out in a country where you may think that, lo and behold, the, you know, there's nobody around. Uh, the example in Texas, they were out really nowhere uh, where that happened. So, uh, so the location does not guarantee safety, but times have changed, and just again, we have to be responsible and thinking about spiritual safety as well as physical safety. And the broader picture here, too, I think is important that this issue of threats and church security is one that's dealt with, uh, certainly as Pastor Rohrer points out, large congregations across America. But globally, listen, Christians in far-flung places from Indonesia to China to Vietnam and elsewhere, they have to take these matters into consideration every single day. So there is the broader sense that this this attack, this threat, is one that is um, talked about in Scripture. It's one that I think we need to understand has to be addressed. And the steps involved in doing so and in, in engaging in that careful consideration of good stewardship are not all that complex. We're going to ask Pastor Rohrer to kind of go down that safety checklist to give you some food for thought. Let's take a brief time out, though. First, we'll get you updated on traffic. Come back to more of our conversation with Pastor Sam Rohrer. He, of course, is the president of the American Pastors Network. We're talking about safety and security in church during Christmas time and quite frankly, all 12 months of the year. We'll get back to more of that conversation right after an update on traffic with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're talking safety and security over the holidays, and it's a good practice, quite frankly, around the calendar in light of what we've seen taking place with the most recent terror attack in New York this week. And um, it's not all that long ago, maybe a month and a half, barely, since the terror attack, the domestic terrorism attack at a small rural church in Texas that ought to cause all of us to rethink the responsibility that we have of being good stewards, and certainly from a pastoral standpoint, you know, you want your people to be safe. Of course you do. I mean, you got a roof over the church building for a reason, right? So when they come to church on Sunday, they don't get wet. But you also want to make sure they're safe and secure in other ways. And toward that end, um, Pastor Rohr and the American Pastors Network has put together a, a safety checklist. And maybe you can just take a couple of moments, uh, Pastor Sam, give us some good f- fuel for thought here, and walk us through this top 10 checklist of safety recommendations for churches as they get ready for visitors, particularly here at Christmas time. Absolutely. Uh, the first one that we say is, again, understand biblically the reason why we've, what we've been through, the duty to do so, the reason for doing that. But then process-wise, after that, policy-wise, think about putting in place a security team and, uh, and developing that. Uh, a good place to start is if you have a police officer that goes to the church, uh, retired or active, or perhaps a military guy who's had some training, uh, that kind of thing. Better to have somebody, or best if you could, have somebody who's had some training 
in law enforcement. They have gone through different training, that kind of thing. Put them in charge, perhaps, if they are able. Assemble a team, and then they can go from there to both uh, both train and uh, and put their policies together. That's that's first thing. Number two, uh, then a, a risk assessment should be made. Uh, simply walking around the building, saying what windows are open when, when, the, when the congregation's here, what doors are open, what should be closed, perhaps look about that. Consider the neighborhood in which the church is setting, all those kinds of things, so a risk assessment. Uh, uh, the next one would be implement uh, security protocols, meaning certain basic things like locking the doors after the congregation is in so that outside people can't come in without having to greet somebody. Um, uh, security team members at entrances. Uh, regular assessment of their plan generally, that should be an ongoing thing, so that should be done. Maybe a consideration of putting in security cameras. Uh, not always, but that oftentimes is a very, very good thing for both tracking and a whole kind of thing, so that would be one. Another then would be establish a medical response team. Now, a lot of churches have a doctor or nurse or EMT already kind of in place. If they don't, they really should, because as the church ages, the likelihood of somebody having an, uh, a medical emergency is there. So the medical team that should be in place already should be working, interacting with this other response team. Uh, next, uh, put some legal parameters in place for security measures, meaning uh, when you conduct the, legal, uh, the liability assessment or the, the risk assessment, consider also the laws that are in place locally and and by the state, because because what you can do lawfully varies from state to state, and I would suggest that uh, that a church going through this plan actually involve their local police. Let go to them, tell them what you're doing, ask them for input. They will give input. They will be glad you're doing it, and uh, so that they know what's happening. Because frankly, it helps them in the execution of of their responsibility. Then uh, then next, uh, put in place evacuation plan. Uh, what happens if a fire breaks out? What happens if there is an accident or somebody comes in? What happens? The people should know, and that, 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 that plan should be in place. And next, and I mentioned earlier, involve the law enforcement uh, locally. That's a good idea uh, for a lot of reasons. Both the police and fire should be aware. Great opportunity for the church leadership to also minister to the community. The church and the pastor and the leadership should know the local police. Best if they know them by name in the local fire department. They're part of the community. Uh, they should do that. And then lastly, uh, communicate whatever's put in place with the congregation. Now, not everything in detail. It's probably best if they don't know everything in detail, but they should know that the leadership has sensed the duty, the duty, the responsibility, and they should have basic things communicated to them that things are in place, policies are in place, so that the people know both that the duty has been fulfilled and not that they're nervous necessarily, most are not, but it helps them to understand that actually things are being done decently and in order and, and, and uh, basic precautions are being taken. So that's really what it is. It's those 10 simple steps. Uh, they're basic, but it, if followed, uh, will allow any church to, to take and put into, a, into effect a plan that is workable, uh, is communicable, 
and is executable. And as you point out, Pastor Rohr, this is not designed to scare people. If anything, it should give people a increased sense of comfort that there is an awareness within the congregation and church leadership um, to be prepared. You would hope and pray that you would never need to implement any of these measures, but uh, you know, better better have it and not need it than the other way around, as the old saying goes. And at the end of the day, a lot of this just is good, solid common sense. Having a plan in place for a fire escape plan, uh, in certainly this part of the country, having a plan in place to deal with something like an earthquake, it's just a smart thing to do. So you don't need to scare people with this, but rather give them an increased sense of security because the congregation knows that the church leadership has taken the time and cares enough to look after not only the spiritual well-being of the congregation, but the physical well-being as well when they're gathered together as the body. Body of believers. Pastor Rohr, I sure appreciate your time. I'm curious, is this list available? Can they find it on the American Pastors Network website? Uh, Craig, yes, they can, AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. There'll be a reference on the the main page there. All right, fantastic. So if you heard the list and would like to get a copy for yourself or send a copy to your pastor, just go to AmericanPastorsNetwork.net, and on the main homepage, you'll find information regarding this uh, 10 action steps that can be taken to make your church safer at Christmas time. And again, that's American Pastors Network. Our thanks to Pastor Sam Rohr, the president of the American Pastors Network, for that update. Six o'clock exactly from KFAX San Francisco. I'm going to get some tea for the throat, and you're going to get a chance to get updated on some headline news. But first, a look at some traffic news with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com